two things are particularly pressing on my heart right now and both are relational and it is the the relationship between the first commandment and prayer there's such importance in putting the first commandment first so what's pressing on me is the importance of putting the first commandment first and the prayerlessness of God's people they go together because without relationship intimacy connectedness with him we don't pray power comes from presence and if you want the presence of God you have to be present with God that means he must come first he must be your priority in other words you put the first commandment first without prayer we're powerless and prevailing prayer first requires presence prayerful people are powerful people therefore to the extent that we're not prayerful we lack power how much time do you spend with him in prayer each day I'm not trying to put you on the spot or deliver you to guilt beloved just answer that yourself to the extent that you spend time with him you can measure your spirituality and your power to influence the atmosphere in the world around you the kingdom he says is about me how I like to do things how I like to order things in the realm of my heart in other words the kingdom is about the way he wants things done on earth as it is in heaven and we're the means for that transaction to take place his chosen way for his will to be worked out on this earth is through his people who live under his smile enjoy his favor which is his bias towards them have influence with him and spread that favor and influence around the world so that like Jesus we go about doing good and overcome evil thereby prayer then requires us to spend time in his presence putting the first commandment first seeking his will because God's hand is moved by the prayers of his people on the other hand nothing moves nothing changes if we do not seek his face and pray issues for us are settled in the throne room not the boardroom putting the second commandment instead of the first commandment first busying ourselves with good works towards men before we've been in the presence of God together with prayerlessness result in sterility and powerlessness powerlessness means us making more and more efforts to make things happen coming up with more and more ideas and schemes to draw people into the kingdom in the charismatic church it's turn up the PA just to get a bit louder sterility is barrenness our efforts are unfruitful if you can say how you did it beloved God isn't in it because when God starts to work people can't do it feeding the 5,000 and parting the Red Sea couldn't be done by human effort nor could demolishing the walls of Jericho 
To give you an example, I recently had a petition passed on to me regarding religious freedom and the necessity to have enough signatures to get Parliament to consider a change. Whilst it might well be true that a certain number of people need to sign a piece of paper, when I prayed and asked God about it, he said to me, you can sign the petition but I won't hear that. I'll hear if you petition or pray to me. Then I will come and I will heal your land. God never acts outside of his word. And this particular word is 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 where we see that it says if my people, perhaps they will, perhaps they won't, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will come and heal their land. That's the way for us. We seek him we hear from him, we pray according to what he tells us and he moves in the situation. Our assignment is to believe him, trust him, obey him and work with him. Then we will see the supernatural. Beloved, we are living in spiritual exile and we don't recognise it. His goal is not only to reach the world but to bring us into a progressively deeper encounter with him. We say, here's the direction I want to go, will you help me achieve it? Will you bless me, Father, as I want to go and do this? We take the initiative and call God in. Beloved, it's not biblical. He initiates, we respond. We have been led away. We've been robbed and we've been plundered by the enemy of our souls. It's time for us to rise up into our true identity as the children of God and recognize his possession and ownership of us. He is our father and we are his children both by regeneration and by blood. Regeneration, 1 Peter 1, verse 23 in the Amplified. But you have been regenerated, born again, not from a mortal origin, seed or sperm, but from one that is immortal, by the ever-living and lasting word of God. And blood, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 in the New King James Version. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. We looked a little bit last December at the blood. Vital that we bring back the blood. There's no redemption, no forgiveness of sin without the blood. And in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, New American Standard, 
for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your lives. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. And that price was the shed blood of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. This relationship is all there is of God working in all there is of you. Prayer is where God invites you to become aware of his presence so he can tell you what his agenda is so you can be involved with him. When we do this we will see this nation turned around. We will not see it turned around by taking the easy option of signing a piece of paper and going on our way thinking we've done something. We won't see it by church attendance either, doing the things we've always done. We will see it if we rise up, as he calls us, and step into our true identity as believers and the call of God according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, very familiar scripture, NIV. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You do know, don't you, that all things only work together for good if you love God. In other words, you can't claim this scripture if you're doing your own thing and deciding the direction of your own life. They work together for good when you love him and align yourself with his purposes for your life. God has placed you in the one place where you can get all your prayers answered and all your needs met in Christ. And you've been bought with a price. These are neglected truths, beloved. It's time we began to recognise both his ownership and possession of us. We are twice born and blood-bought. Philip Keller, a shepherd from South Africa, wrote a number of books, which probably the most famous one is on the 23rd Psalm, and it's called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. In it he says this, I recall quite clearly how in my first venture with sheep, the question of paying a price for my use was so terribly important. They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I had paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. James 4, 13-17 in the message. And now I have a word for you who brashly announced today at the latest tomorrow we're off to such and such a city for the year. We're going to start a business and make a lot of money. You don't know the first thing about tomorrow. You're nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. Instead, make it a habit to say, if the master wills it, and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. As it is, you're full of your grandiose selves. All such vaunting self-importance is evil. 
In fact, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that for you is evil. Even in the message that comes across quite strongly. And Philip Keller further describes his feelings as he brought each ewe to market as his own. Laying the ear of the animal on a rock, he cut it with a knife. Thus the ewe bore a lifelong mark of his ownership. What's the mark that Jesus has put on you? It's the Holy Spirit. Beloved, you're marked. Ephesians 4.30 in the Amplified says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not offend or vex or sadden him, by whom you were sealed, marked, branded as God's own, secured for the day of redemption, of final deliverance through Christ from evil and the consequences of sin. Is all of this new to you? Or have you been beguiled by the serpent into forgetting the rock from which you were hewn? Beloved, we are compelled, duty-bound and constrained, to recognise both his possession and ownership of us, and bow the knee to his majesty and his lordship in our lives. We belong to God. He bought us. He made us and he chose us in Christ out of love before the foundation of the earth to be his. It is time to become intentional towards him. When we come to explore the cycles that God takes us round, establishing us first in our position as children of God, which is sonship, through to servanthood, friendship and finally making us his love, sh love slave, we'll see how important it is that we comprehend that we belong to him and respond accordingly. Outside of the context of this love relationship, our journey into his great heart, nothing will make a grain of sense to us. Nothing. God is reclaiming his church. If you're in the flesh, reserving the right to make your own choices and live your own life, he hasn't got you and you haven't got him. God's in the process of toughness, toughening us up in the nicest possible way. He's getting to grips with our flesh and bringing some semblance of purity into our lives. God won't fit in with us. We must move our feet and fit in with him. Again, let's never forget that the history of Israel is there as an example to us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.6, and this is the New Living Translation, these things happened as a warning to us that we would not crave the evil things as they did. In God's great love for his people, he raised up a deliverer for them whose name was Moses. The Israelites had everything going for them. They were delivered from a cruel and despotic ruler, as were we. Protected, fed, clothed and led, God was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. No one could have been better equipped for running a spiritual race than the young nation of Israel. 
They got off to a great start, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But despite the overwhelming benefits and advantages, they fell short, drifted into doubt, unbelief and grumbling, and they never made it into the promised land. And again, Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1 to 5 in the message. Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours, as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. They all ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, God's fountain for them that stayed with them wherever they were. And the rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert, and God was not pleased. Why were they defeated? They grumbled, and they complained, and they failed to know who God was. They knew his works, but they didn't know his ways. They did not trust him or believe him. They were ignorant of the relationship he desired to have with his people. At the risk of becoming boring, everything, so far as God is concerned, is relational. Everything is moving towards the consummation, the perfect ending, the marriage of the Lamb. It's said of Moses that he knew God's ways. God doesn't guarantee us immunity from trials and problems. In fact, as we'll see in next month's study, Image and Likeness, trials are absolutely necessary for our growth and development. It's what we do with those trials that matters at the end of the day. You can groan and go through them or you can go and grow through them. If you groan and go through them wanting nothing but deliverance, understanding nothing and learning nothing, you'll go around them again and again and again and again and again and again and again until you finally go through. God's purpose for us is the same as it was for Israel. And before we start to feel in any way superior to them, we must recognise that we're in exactly the same place as they were. We live in exile, drawn away from our inheritance. Our good seed has been choked by the enticements and cares of the world. God chose Israel as his special people, his peculiar treasure. The Hebrew word is segula, S-E-G-U-L-L-A-H. They were special. They were precious. There was a grace upon them. He chose them to be in covenant relationship with him, just as he has chosen us. What was theirs is now ours. We are his special people, his treasured possession. There is favour upon us, and we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. We are so rich. All this means that he hears us when we speak to him. He wanted Israel to be a spiritual light that would bring the whole world to himself. His intention is the same for us. We're to be salt and light to the nations around us. 
we're meant to have a profound effect on the atmosphere where we live and to be a blessing to everyone in sight because we live as the beloved of God. Could it be, beloved, that we've trusted Jesus for our salvation but have never yielded our lives up to him? Could it be that we've not made him Lord? Could it be that we've never surrendered control to him nor sought him for his will or purpose for us? Could it be that we've only gone so far in our relationship and still reserve the right to control our own lives and environment as best suits us? Could it possibly be that we do not understand that we don't belong to ourselves but to him? Could it be that we have no knowledge of what it means to be bought with a price? If this is the case, we've been sleeping with the enemy. And like Samson, our power has been shorn from us while we slept. We've been led away. We've been robbed. We've been plundered. Yielding to his lordship is the way of continuous blessing. Finding your own way is the way of the wilderness. When you rely on your own ideas to guide you and make your own decisions, you remove yourself from the hand of blessing that is constantly extended to you. We've believed a lie. We've been robbed. We've been plundered because we are called, we are chosen, we are precious, we are kings, we are priests, we have a purpose, we have a destiny and an identity, we are people of purpose and the subject of God's intentionality and we are the answer to every need that society has right now. We are a people, a holy nation, belonging to God. 1 Peter 2, 9 in the King James Version says this. Sorry, the New King James Version. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Like Israel, we've spent our inheritance flirting with the world and have adapted ourselves to its culture because the enemy of our souls has persuaded us that to serve God would be to lose out. He's caught us with exactly the same lie as he did our parents in the garden. Our goals, aims and aspirations are largely exactly the same as those of the world and we won't let go our control of our own destinies for fear we do not get what we want. We've bought the lie. You can be as God. You can be master of your own destiny. You don't need him. He gave you free will. Exercise it. And in the exercise of your free will away from the Father, you remove yourself from the source, the fount, the wellspring of all blessing.
And Father would say this to you. And this arises from an incident that we have actually recently experienced and one of our number sought the Lord to find out what the result of not asking him might be and why it was so important that every decision, every choice is brought under his lordship. And he said this, Sometimes succeeding generations have to live with the consequences of the actions of an individual. Everyone has a responsibility to seek me and hear me for themselves. If they would humble themselves rightly to seek me, which doesn't mean getting on their knees, but simply asking me beforehand, I would cover their mistakes. All of you will make mistakes, but it is the intention, the humbling and seeking of me beforehand that is all important to me. To just decide something for yourself and if it goes wrong to ask me for forgiveness afterwards is not what I require, although I will always forgive for that's my nature. The consequences of an action where I've not been sought and it's outside of my will may well be hard for you to live with. The promise is obvious here. God is moved by our intention to yield our lives to him. He doesn't say you have to get it right, just that you consult him before you do anything. The Bible is littered with examples of those who took the law into their own hands and did what they thought fit. If you will defer to him in all things, bring everything under his control, live in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, he undertakes that when you get it wrong, as you will, and make a mess of it, you won't live in the consequences of an uncommitted decision. He will cover and protect you. Help you to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. If we don't seek him and we make a mistake, though forgiven, we'll live with the consequences and so will those around us. The classic is Abraham. He hearkened to the voice of his wife, went into Hagar and Ishmael was the result. He was not the promised seed, but true to God's word of prophecy over him, he's a man of war and in contention with his brothers and we're still living with the consequences of Abraham's action or Abraham's action of going in to Hagar at the prompting of Sarah. And God said of Ishmael in Genesis 16:12, Is this not the truth, beloved? Listen to this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards his brothers. Palestine and Israel. The lesson here is that we must seek him first in everything. And if we do, he will cover us as we move and live in his grace towards us. This is a place of absolute freedom, beloved. Do not believe the lie of the enemy that by so doing you will lose your freedom. Completely the reverse is the truth. So it's a time to recognize that the result of exercising your self-will is that you've become duped 
into living a life far below that which God intends. It's time to rise up and become all that Jesus won for us, all that he says we are, and to step into our destiny in Christ. It's time to be as intentional in our choices towards God as he is towards us. God is consistently brilliant. He is unceasingly magnificent. He has a bright and radiant future for you, but you must step into it intentionally by making the choices which will result in your living an intentional lifestyle towards him. By becoming heartfelt, not headstrong. So what are you going to choose this day? Mediocrity or the challenge of an intentional lifestyle? Serving the devil or serving God? It's most important that you realise he will not love you any the less if you do not respond. He loves you all the way, all the time. But people are perishing, children are being abused, families are breaking down because the church is not standing where she should, in the presence of God, hearing his heart, receiving his blessing, releasing his blessing and praying and living as much loved children. We only have one shot at this. There's no second chance to make our lives count for the kingdom. You don't want to be regretting what might have been when you get there. So I want to release you into dreaming. And before I do, I want to tell you a story about some youngsters and their dreams. And it's a story of five housewives. They felt very strongly about starting a pregnancy advice counselling centre for young girls. There was no money in the church so they went off and did it themselves. And the church family stood with them and prayed with them and watched over them but they went out. They found the finances, they got the whole thing going. And now it's one of the most productive things in the United Kingdom. It came to the attention of government and they ended up going to South Africa to set up projects in townships over there. Five girls, all housewives, with a vision and God's heart. Five women with a vision to change a situation with the power of God with them. Projects like this begin in our hearts. What dream has God put in your heart? What might now become possible for you? Someone recently had the following conversation with Jesus about how he sees the whole issue of justice. Some people are very justice orientated, but just measure your idea of justice with this because you might find it doesn't actually line up with God's idea of justice. This is what Jesus said to them. Justice is about the heart, my heart. It's not an attitude or a lifestyle, it's about what mirrors my heart. It's rightness, fairness, my heart. 
Justice is the living out of love. It's love with legs on. Justice is love with legs on. So you want me to tell you what my heart is for justice in your world? I'll tell you. Look at your world and ask what I think about it. How I feel about it. Then put legs on it. Your legs. But before you do, you need to have the same heart as mine because you need motivation. It will be no good doing good works unless you feel how I feel. So you need first to get my heart and then put legs on it. Look around you and see it through my eyes. Ask me what I feel about your neighbourhood, the lonely singles in the bedsits, the families trapped by credit debt, the lure of binge drinking, unwanted pregnancies in the high-rises, trafficked victims, the hatred of gangs, homeless despair. Look around you and ask me what I feel. Walk the streets, look from the high places, read the newspapers and always ask me how I feel and what I want you to do. Be guided by your spirit and your heart, not your mind. Don't be guided by politics, but by my spirit, seeking him to touch you. It comes from the heart, always the heart, and it requires a soft heart, one that feels what I feel and can pass it on. Feel my heart. What might now be open to you if you join in bridal partnership with the Lord and respond to his call on your life? What might now be possible to you if you make yourself available for him to help himself to your life? What things might now be possible if you tell him you only have one life and you want it to count? If you can come to the trust to trust in the nature of God, nothing will be impossible for you. You will hear the call of God and you'll respond in faith and you can become part of an unpredictable body of people, the church. But you'll need to get rid of that spirit of fear and come out of your comfort zones and seek him for his heart and be willing to follow his desires for your life and ministry. In all of this, beloved, God does not look at your ability, but your desire. He looks at your intentionality, not your attainment. He looks at what we intend our intentionality towards him, that which is done after careful consideration, not on a whim or a rush of emotion, but on a carefully thought out determination. Abandonment to Jesus, true abandonment, comes after considering the cost and a careful and intentional determination. It comes when you make the decision, excuse me, the decision to live in Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, 
and I'm reading now from the Amplified Version. Lean on, trust in and be confident in the Lord with all your heart and mind and do not rely on your own insight or understanding. In all your ways know, recognize and acknowledge him and he will direct and make straight and plain your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Reverently fear and worship the Lord and turn entirely away from evil. It shall be health to your nerves and sinews and marrow and moistening to your bones. It will be a no-brainer not to live in this place. Look at the promises. He will direct your paths and make them plain and straight. You'll be healthy. So are you going to stay where you are or are you going to get in on the next move of God? What's more important to you, maintaining the status quo or living a life excited and on the cutting edge? And bless him, he doesn't look at your achievement or attainment of all this. He knows you can't do it. He looks at your heart's desire for him, your intention towards him, not your attainment. It is that of which he says, turn your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. The beloved's heart is what he looks on, and it's that which ravishes, overwhelms and captivates his heart. He's moved by our desire to love him with all of our hearts, weak as that desire is. So if today all you have is a hunger in your heart after him to make your life count, you're in a good place. If today all you want is to serve him, you are in a good place. If today all you have is the desire, you're in a good place. Do you want to be able to say on that day, I have completed the work you gave me to do? Do you want to be able to say with Paul, I've finished my course with joy? I know I do. God has predestined you and he has planned a path for you to walk in. It's your inheritance, beloved. Whatever he's called you to do, you couldn't do it unless he called you and he will equip you in that calling. But your choices will govern your destiny. You can't find out run into someone else. You seek him, you do it. You wait on him, you do it. He will lead you into your inheritance. Psalm 16.5 The Lord is my portion. He leads you to pleasant places, path of life. In his presence there's fullness and pleasures forevermore. The Lord leads you to pleasant places, into the path of life, which includes deep personal satisfaction. I can say of a truth to you all that since I was born again at the age of 48 which is now 25 years ago maybe 26 years this year I have never walked in so much deep personal satisfaction. I have a satisfying life. He satisfies me to the uttermost because I have taken him for everything.
The Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 3 in the New American Standard. And she says this, she's coming to the end of her journey now, into his heart. I am my beloved's, he possesses me, and he is mine. She realises that she's his, that she's his inheritance, and he is hers. She comes up out of that wilderness, leaning on her beloved. Total, utter, delightful dependence on him. And she's travelled from the first part of the Song of Songs, from where she was black but comely, to a place where she recognises that she's possessed and owned and belongs to him. And she loves it. She is his and he is hers. It's a marriage, beloved. It's a marriage. We are his inheritance. And this is what motivates us. Letting the Lord choose our inheritance for us. So he knows best. And that's what prophetic words are. God's stating his prophetic destinies and our inheritance over us. He speaks out of his intentionality towards us, his plans for us and his desires for us. And Psalm 37 5 tells us this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. First, first, delight yourself in him. Then, the desires he's planted in you, he will fulfill. And when you do find out what he's called you to do, be wise who you talk to. You have to learn to stand alone with God people bless them may well discourage you and it's in this place that you learn how addicted you are to everyone else's opinion or approval of you testings will come so it's relational we obey him because we love him if your motivation for walking with the Lord is anything less than being a father pleaser you'll actually find yourself in all sorts of problems. God's calling us up to an intentional lifestyle. He's into lifestyle, not ministry. And every one of us carries a message. What's yours? And just before we finally finish now, I want to just conclude with a word about your Isaac. I suspect that many may be holding on to their Isaac, saying, It's mine, Father, it's mine, God. I built it. I established it. It's mine. Or maybe your Isaac is really a literal child or children that you're holding on to. God says, Will you let go and let me? 
I can't preach or teach without giving you an opportunity to run, respond to what's been said. I owe you, owe it to you to do that. So I'm saying to you now, if God has spoken to your heart today, you've got the opportunity to bring your eyes up and put it on the altar right now. You might be uh, unhappy or edgy or tense because you're asserting your own will and your own claim to something that God's given you. It may be a ministry, it may be a gift, it may be a situation, it may be a person. He's asking you to lay it on the altar. Give it back. God by his spirit will give you the grace to let it go and give that Isaac to him. So just hand it over to him. Trust him with the consequences. You won't be truly free until you yield it up. Are you willing to do that? Take the knife. If you give it to him, in his way and his time, he will bless it and multiply it more than is in your capacity to comprehend. And he will give it back, but you'll relate differently to it when he does. You won't possess it anymore. You will steward it. You won't say it's yours will no longer belong to you. You'll steward it. Only that which is given over to the master, placed into his hands like bread for the breaking, can ever see a multiplication. Maybe you are your Isaac. Maybe you want to place him, yourself into his hands today like bread for the breaking, to feed other people. Whatever you decide this day, never, never doubt that God loves you. Never doubt that he is with you. Never doubt he listens to you. And never doubt that he's speaking to you. He will never change the way he feels towards you. He loves you 100% all the way, all the time. So whatever you have decided will not in the slightest bit affect his love towards you because it is ever towards you. God bless you and thank you so much for listening. Next month we'll be looking at image and likeness and the fact that trials are necessary. Just let's finish then, beloved, with a prayer. It's been a good start to a new decade. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have a dream for each one of our lives. Thank you that you don't ask us to fulfil it. But if we will cooperate with you, we will see the incredible and believe for the miraculous. We will live a life less ordinary. And Jesus will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. We bless you. We magnify you. We thank you. We adore you. Lord God Almighty. Amen.